the scene was dead anyway. A music scene lives, a music scene dies. The stories, however, are immortal. The scene was dead anyway is a look into the lives, communities and music scenes that help shape an entire generation. Hello and welcome to the Scene Was Dead Anyway podcast. I'm your host Rick Walland. This is episode number 21 and today I'm delighted to be joined by the incredible drumming genius Neil Turpin. Most of you know him from Bilge Bump, a three-piece underground DIY rock band from Leeds. He's played drums for nearly four decades and has also appeared behind the kit in other bands like Solanke, Quack Quack, Polaris and Felix but his main body of work is with Bilge Pump we've been together for I believe 25 plus years Bilge Pump have released three studio albums Let Me Breathe 2002 Rupert the Sky 2008 and most recently We Love You 2019 before we start if you're watching on YouTube Please, could you like and subscribe to my channel to help the podcast grow? If you're listening on Apple iTunes, please, could you leave a review under the ratings and review section? You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching The Scene Was Dead Anyway. So, welcome onto the show. Thank you so much for coming on neil honestly it's a it's a it's a dream to have you on for me personally because you know i'm a big big fan of bilge pump and and obviously a drummer myself so a huge um fan of your drumming <laughs> so if you want to just give like a little introduction about yourself and where you live and um yeah. yeah thanks man it's good to be here as well thanks for having me um yeah i'm neil i'm playing bilge pump and a heap of other bands over the years as well. I live in Saltburn by the Sea on the northeast coast of England, which is um, a little coastal seaside town, Victorian sort of tourist trap these days. It's got a surf scene. That's really the main reason I live here because I can walk down the street and jump in the sea and get on my surfboard, which is a nice treat. There's no, no music scene really. So that is kind of um, one of the cons of the place, but you know there are plenty of pros to it. Yeah, yeah. And but you're not you're not actually from around there. You, I, I believe you're from Preston. Is that right? That is correct. So yeah. So kind of my yeah. neck of the woods. Yeah, I'm from Wigan. Indeed, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, I used to. You're from Wigan. Are you from Wigan? Yeah, from Wigan. Yeah. 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 I, I was in Preston till I was 19. Um, used to go over to Wigan for gigs quite a bit. Yeah, so so we we might, we talked a little bit about it on uh, on so on uh, Instagram that like the first I think the first time I saw you was it, at the tavern in Wigan. Yeah, and I think you were playing with Duracell. Duracell were playing as well. Yeah, I remember. A little yeah. French guy. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I must have been about I don't know what year it was. Do you, Do you remember what Do you have Do you remember what year it was? Oh man, like. It's it's kind of impossible really to date some gigs, you know, without mm. 
without sort of connecting it to some kind of landmark thing happening in the rest of my life. I, I struggle. So that, that Wigan gig. Yeah. God, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I really don't know. I think I was probably 15, 16 at the time. And, and I, yeah, you've, you know, just uh, your brooming and, and the band just blew me away. And, and then I think after I said, I came up to you and asked you, what advice, have you got any advice for me? He said, practice uh, every day, three hours a day. And I was like, okay. And I did it. And uh, here I am. <laughs> Is that what I said? Three hours a day? I think it was three hours a day. Maybe I'm <laughs> making that up. But. That's good. No no messing around. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's how, so that I guess that's where you kind of, that was the foundation for your, your, your kind of where you are now as a drummer. Um, yeah, that, that kind of puts it in perspective because when I was practicing so much, um, it would have been like the mid nineties, early two thousands, I guess. Hmm. When I was deeply into like need, you know, wanting to just play every day for at least two hours. Hmm. So yeah, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've mellowed out now with my advice, you know, it's like just, just practice for like, you know, two hours, 45 minutes. <laughs> She's shaved off fifteen minutes, but <laughs> <laughs> so so who were you who would who were your kind of early influences? Um I mean, I guess because uh, I know that you moved to you moved to Leeds, is that right? And then that was when you really started to kind of get involved. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I moved to Leeds when I was nineteen with the express intention to meet people, to make bands and to put on gigs. And just like put all those really cool DIY ideas into practice and, you know, just try and make something happen and just just doing it all really naively and kind of idealistically. Um, but yeah, I couldn't really I couldn't really like find people to play in a band with in Preston. So I was quite desperate to move. And um, I knew that Leeds Leeds had the Duchess of York venue, which. I would go over there for gigs. So I knew stuff was happening mm. and it was also a good city for skateboarding. So, you know, those two things were important to me at the time. Um, but yeah, moving to Leeds was, was like the big one really for um, accelerating um, my involvement in music and, and being a drummer for sure. And I guess, uh, cause I, I do have some of the, the bands that other bands that you're in apart, apart from Bilge, uh, Polaris, yeah, um, and and then uh, Felix with with Chris who I had on last episode. <clears throat> yeah, did they were they pre, was Polaris a precursor to Bilge or was it sort of aligned at the same time? Yeah, they were pretty much the same. Like for me, there was a band called Baby Heart Seal which you might have come across, and they were. Those two bands, stops, Polaris and Baby Hartsfield, started at the same time. Hmm. In um, would have been like nineteen ninety four. So those two bands were running concurrently, and Bilge Pump were were in existence, probably very much around the same time, but with a drum machine. Oh. And and it wasn't for a couple of years. It wasn't till a couple of years later that I joined them as with a, as a drummer. So. So Bilge, Bilge Pump ran concurrently to, Heart, to Baby Heart Seal and Polaris. And 
you know, another significant band was Solanke as well from around that time that I played in, which were ah, a very much Minutemen inspired band. So just to interrupt you, sorry, uh, Neil, there's a, someone called Praise the Loud on Twitter, mm. uh, Bristol-based person. Uh, they said, please, just please talk about Solanke a bunch, please. So <laughs> here we go. Okay. <laughs> Solanke. Oh, the ball rolling. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Solanke was just um, a three-piece in the style of the Minutemen. We wore our influences on our sleeve for that band um, and made no... Uh, you know, we didn't try and hide it. It was obvious. We kind of gave all the clues away. But um, yeah, it was just a band that was created to fill up a gig, uh, the bill of a gig. So we had two bands on a, on a gig and we needed a third band. So we thought, oh, we'll make one, you know. So we spent two weeks just making a set and rehearsing and and like, and that became Solanke. And um, it, turned, it turned into a fun little band and we ended up doing a 10-inch on Flat Earth Records. And, you know, we didn't really spread our wings that far, but we played around the UK a little bit. Mm. But it was pretty much just a Leeds-based thing and very much just for that community as well and for ourselves more than anything else. And so who was who was that with then in that in Solanke? Who was the It was it was a guy called Ilan on guitar and he was also a member of Polaris initially and he played on the first Polaris album. Mm. Um and it was Seth playing bass and singing, who was a member of Baby Harp Seal at the same time as well. <clears throat> and I played with him in another band in another couple of bands, um Snail Racing which was three bass players and me on drums wow. and, um, and another band interesting. Diesel. <laughs> yeah and and another band diesel versus steam you know this is just turning into a big long list of band names but um, yeah you're trying to outdo chris summerlin for uh, how many bands you've been in <laughs> <laughs> he's been in a few um uh, yeah i've probably i've probably been in like there was there was one point where i was probably playing in six or seven bands at the same time. So wow. That, that's pretty nice, like immersive moment in my life for being just completely like in the music bubble. Yeah, so you, so it was probably the right choice you made to, uh, to, to move to Leeds then. Was... For sure, yeah. I mean, I credit it for really like, yeah, just broadening my whole, um, horizon you know in every sense like musically and like playing wise and and just kind of absorbing lots of different influences and like you'll know it yourself from playing in bands when you play with different people it brings out a different part of your playing oh for sure yeah yeah you'll express something differently in response to whoever you're playing with so yeah to have to have that like on such a big wide varied scale was amazing yeah, I mean, so I just wanted to uh, ask you quickly. When, so how long have you been? How long have you been playing drums? And uh, are you mostly, are you mostly self-taught, or did you have some formal like tuition? And yeah, yeah, I started when I was ten years old, and the the motivation was so I could make a band with my friends because they were learning to play guitar. And we were all we were all really into heavy metal at the time, and little ten year old metalers. So you know, I was just like, yeah, if I play drums, 
we can make a band. So <laughs> I just asked my mom, I told my mom I want to play drums. And so she gave me like a probation period of three months. Um, and she found me a teacher and said, if you're still interested in three months, you know, we'll get you a drum kit. Wow. Okay. So I, I passed my probationary period and, um, and then started lessons. And I had lessons for about two years. And it was just really kind of um, basic, kind of rudimentary. The drum, I, I remember the drum teacher just putting like Buddy Rich snare drum rudiments on a stand in front of me. And then just kind of going into the kitchen and making cups of tea. And, you know, that, that was his style. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> so there wasn't, he didn't really do a great deal of teaching. He was just kind of put the book in front of you mm. and just kind of like, you know, got frustrated when you couldn't do it. Uh, yeah but i i um i was just so into playing the drums that i was just enjoying it more in my band with my friends mm. so when it got to a point where i just didn't understand the notation anymore and i couldn't get it right because he never really my drum teacher never really explained it to me he was just kind of like expected it to happen and and plus i probably wasn't like that that sharp or quick on the uptake either so you know anyway like i kept i missed a lesson here and there then i missed two and then it just kind of totally fizzled yeah. in terms of the lessons but i was still really into playing the drums and and like you know playing all the time with my friends so yeah there was a, there was a couple of years of some lessons but then from that point i just taught myself yeah yeah and for for perhaps like 10 years after that I was just playing, wasn't really thinking about, you know, what, what I was doing. I couldn't say, oh yeah, this is a paradiddle or this is a flam. I was yeah. doing it, but I couldn't have defined it. But then, you know, shortly after moving to Leeds, I got really heavily into wanting to progress and I would go to the library and find drum books and then find books on how to read notation and like, Really, really at a snail's pace, I learned to read drum notation. And then, you know, equally at a snail's pace, I, I learned how to play different styles from books. Mm, mm. Um, so I was doing that concurrent with playing with all these other bands as well. So um, having, having this kind of drip drip of new ideas that I was getting from books, as well as playing with different people all kind of, you know, it came together really nicely. Yeah. And but I, I guess I consider myself self-taught overall mm. because, you know, I've been playing for what, like, no, wait, 37 years. And, wow. you know, th 35 of those didn't have a teacher involved. So I think I'm self-taught really. That's amazing. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure how long you've been playing for. Uh, but that's that's quite a stretch. And it, yeah, man, I'm old now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I wanted. So I guess falling into that into the styles of music that you ended up playing, did it sometimes kind of? Would you say it kind of clashed with with your traditional kind of drumming that you were learning to do, and or was it just like it kind of works in this in this context as well? well I'm going to make it work anyway. Um. Mm, um to be honest i think um 
because there was there was no there was no money involved in any of it you know so if i got involved in something it was because i was into it mm. Mm. yeah so i think if someone asked me to do something then i would weigh it up purely in terms of whether i would enjoy doing it and hearing it and whether it was something i could be into mm. so i didn't really come up with anything like that would clash in terms of my tastes or or what i would what i could bring to it and often i just like the challenge as well yeah. you know like i'd never played sort of surf rock but mm. um a really talented bunch of friends from leeds days had a surf rock band, you know, and their drummer quit and they needed a drummer. So it's like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And it yeah. was just like, okay, yeah, just, just to step into some different shoes in terms mm. of um, different drumming shoes. So I just enjoyed that variety really. Yeah. And would you, would you say, I mean, have you always played the way you've, that I kind of know you play, you know, in that kind of, that kind of fusiony style jazzy rocky funk or i mean how did you start out just like bashing the crap out of it like a metal drummer or how did it yeah i was i was a metal drummer my first band at school was a metal band it was a thrash a thrash metal band and we did cover versions of rock songs as well oh. so that's that's where it started and then i got more into like i mean my drumming has just really followed the same trajectory as my music taste i think mm, yeah so as my music tastes have broadened so is my you know inf my kind of influences as a drummer as well so whatever i was listening to i'd try and take a little bit of that on board so it's just been a gradually slowly evolving thing i mean there there is i mean in terms of my own drumming there is like a, a kind of line in the sand for me and and it was like before I started using my left foot hi-hat to keep time yeah. and after. So to me, ah. that, that was a kind of like <laughs> a, a transition. I felt like, okay, now I've matured. Now I'm using my left foot hi-hat. I'm, I'm, I'm somehow more well-rounded. And like... that's, that's, that's interesting you say that because that's exactly how I felt when I started to mm. do the, the, the count on the hi-hat. It, 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 well, it's just like, it, it, to me, it felt like it was, oh, I had this anchor like through everything that I was doing, I had this mm. metronome. So in a way I was like, you know, I just made me a much better drummer just having that, that pulse, yeah. you know? Yeah, for sure. And I, I can hear it on records. I know which records um, I've done, which were before I started playing my left foot hi-hat and then the <laughs> yeah. ones afterwards. So yeah. there's like a line yeah. in the sand somewhere. Yeah. So that, that, that was like, um, you know that was a nice nice move in the right direction just to just to get better at playing absolutely uh so with so bilge pump i um let's let's go to the beginning of bilge pump i i didn't know about the the drum machine i mean that that must have mm. been a was it kind of like a a big black kind of thing was it yeah you're on the right lines there it was it was like a heavy pounding industrial type thing really like dirty fuzzy scuzzy guitar and like distorted bass and yeah and just a kind of very rudimentary sort of um, pounding drum machine but then then you came along and uh, how so how did that come about that you 
joined up with with those, with Joe and well I'd you know I'd seen I'd gone to see Bilge Pump and I thought they were great with a drum machine um you know at that time in Leeds there were there was a lot of gigs in in pubs in function rooms just like small kind of DIY scene type things so the PAs were never any good mm. never any monitors so when I saw Bilge Pump they would always struggle to be in time with the drum machine because they couldn't hear it through the PA so oh right it was it was um you know there was all this kind of like unintended kind of drama and tension as sort of joe was trying to get stay in time with it and trying to hear it and you know but um but yeah so i would they were just a band that existed in leeds before i got there and um you know i'd go and see them and enjoy them and it's such a small scene that everybody just eventually gets to know each other mm. Mm. but uh, yeah, it wasn't till a couple of years later that I got involved. And that's when Joe was living in the same house. Um, I was living in this house, like this five bedroom house, and it had a little box room. So you could say it was six bedrooms. And like Joe moved into the box room f for a couple of weeks while he was looking for somewhere else to live. Yeah. And and he stayed there for maybe six years or seven years. Wow. Um, okay. So that's, that's how... Um, you know, I can't remember the exact kind of moment, but it just seemed like a kind of, you know, natural, uh, quite a natural thing to just sort of end up being in the band. And I can't remember if I asked or if they asked. I think I might have asked because I really liked it. And I thought, I thought it'd be a great opportunity to try and play like a drum machine. So that was my approach in the beginning. So would you say you were quite... Uh quite straight in the way you played because from you know from what i know now like uh it's uh there's a, there's a lot of syncopation and you know off beats and such so i think i was like i was probably just trying to throw everything at the drums at the time i don't think i'd learned how to refine it and hold back i was in that kind of exciting period where like just want to play everything that i can play and yeah it took a while to become a little bit more tasteful and subtle, but, um, but at that time, yeah, I, I um, with bilge pump, I was in, I was just, my approach was to try and just play like a drum machine, really strict and straight and like robotic that didn't last very long, you know? And the good thing about playing in those bands in Leeds was, um, the drum, the stuff that I got involved in, there was not much expectation that the drummer would just keep time, which is a really great way to evolve as a drummer if you've got free, a lot of freedom to explore and try things and just make, make loads of mistakes, but then figure out what works and, you know, often in public as well. But it was just for <laughs> a game. Yeah. You know, it was, it was just like, it was totally, totally fine to do that. And when I look back on it as well, like the music that I was listening to and the music of the time as well, mm. um, the drums are, are very present in the music in a way that they weren't in more mainstream music. Mm. So I think I was looking in that sense, just, you know, that I, I was into this kind of music that didn't have a, any sort of traditional kind of barrier to what a drummer should or shouldn't do, you know? Mm, mm. <clears throat> so there wasn't, there wasn't a great 
there wasn't a great deal of, of restriction happening. And in terms of like, uh, so specifically like irregular time signatures and that, was that a deliberate thing or? Yeah, I mean, like I said, it was just like, you know, at the at the point in time where I heard an odd time signature and like have my mind, you know, completely baffled. It's like, whoa, what's going on? Like, <laughs> why, why can't, why, wait, where's the one, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and then once I knew, okay, yeah, there's seven beats in this bar or there's five beats in this bar. And then you'd like, you count in and, and then you figure it out and then it just kind of like all yeah. becomes clear and then you just hear it. So as I was, as I was hearing that in music that I was listening to, then it didn't take very long to just try and implement it myself into the bands I was playing in. Yeah. And, and I think it kind of happened simultaneously as well with, especially with Polaris and yeah, and with Bilge as well, like odd time signatures just became a kind of common currency, really. They became I don't think anybody common. was... Uh, yeah. Not odd, almost like, yeah, they lost the oddness. Yeah, 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 totally. And I don't think anybody was deliberately going out their way to write something awkward. It was like just that sense of, you know, I've written this riff. Who cares what time signature it's in? It just sounds good like this. And often, you know, and often the person who wrote it maybe didn't know what time signature it was in, but um, that was for me to work out and then put, give it some pulse and make sense of it. Mm. So and, what, I, and I guess that's how I listen as well. You know how I listen as a drummer. It's like you got to make sense of, of of the thing that you're accompanying and try and find something that fits. Definitely. What so what what is the what is the general songwriting process uh, in Bilge Pump? I mean, you've been together for how many yeah. years? Like 20, 25 20. years. Something like yeah, that. at least. Yeah, I think I think I must have been in the band for twenty five years, so that gives them a little, a couple of years more than that in terms of yeah, yeah, how long they've been around. Songwriting process, like it can it can change. I mean, at one point in time when we were playing a lot together in the practice room, we would just jam really, just jam out some ideas and record it and settle on a bit that we liked and then you know loop that and sometimes Emlyn would go home and like create a structure out of a out of a jam and then add lyrics that was kind of like quite a common way for us to to write stuff um sometimes if i had some particularly good bit of drumming that i liked i'd present that and then we could use that as a starting point there's you know there's the odd there's occasional song where i've got like a polyrhythm going and i would you know get emily to play like the fours and joe to play the threes so that creates this polyrhythm between the rest of the band as well so it's kind of nice to build some songs that way from the drums up nice um, yeah. but, but more recently Emlyn Emlyn pretty much kind of just arrived with like songs which were just pretty much done you know and they'd have like, like ukulele on them and things and they'd be quite psychedelic but then they'd go through this sort of bilge pump filter which would <laughs> add like two big muffs and like heavy <laughs> drumming and yeah you know then they'd end up sounding like bilge pump songs and like so the the lyrics and the, and the song titles that's uh is that all all emeline yeah that's emeline yeah i mean 
he's he's got his like completely unique approach to writing lyrics so yeah he's 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 the man who's in charge of the words i think it's uh like comedic brilliance some of some of the names of the songs like bastard scaffolder off off the first and um uh thank you very much i always like that one you know it always starts with they say what's the the way you start the song um i like your style yeah and then it's like bass comes in boom bass and drums are in boof and then it's like oh, i just loved yeah it's uh that's something i like always liked about the live performance as well it was it felt like there was just a good like you had a good laugh as well you know it was a yeah you know, i think um i think like emlyn's lyrics and vocal style like set bilge pump apart quite nicely because on the surface, we could have easily just been another noise rock band mm. with, you know, some kind of growly, aggressive kind of like incoherent singing. But I love the fact that Emlyn's just talking pretty much just chit chat, really. But these really kind of esoteric lyrics that have a lot of humor in them. Yeah. But definitely. without without being kind of deliberately wacky, he just strikes a balance. And, and and kind of makes you curious. And there is a logic to it all as well, but like, you know, you'd really probably have to ask him about that logic, but it's in there. It's not just a whole random bunch of words thrown together. But yeah, there's a lot of humor in that. I do like that. And um, there's, there's humor in the, in, the, in the music itself as well, like for quite, we knew if we were laughing at something in the practice room that we kind of like, you know, we'd struck gold at that moment in time. Yeah. So there are, there are bits in songs that just, you know, we just find funny to play them. So yeah, there is there is humor in it for sure, and I'm glad I'm really glad that comes across and uh and it doesn't detract from what we're doing, I think, cuz everyone can see that there's a lot of um uh I don't know, there's a seriousness to it, but yeah. it's it's not like a po-faced beard stroking seriousness yeah it's, i like that it's kind of yeah. like it's there but like you know the 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 presentation is definitely more light-hearted and with humor absolutely yeah i mean the so i mean like you say some of the songs are like you're like where's the one it's like really tech really technical obviously you're drumming um uh really technical and it's like but at the same time you you you're having a laugh and it, it kind of keeps it down to earth, so to speak. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I find it I find it amusing if somebody can't hear the one, you know. That's, <laughs> You're that's, like, that's great. Yeah, I've achieved my goal. Yeah. <laughs> so, which uh, which um, which album would you? So you've released, am, am I right? Three three albums under Bilge Pump. Um, which one would you say you're most sort of proud of? Oh, hmm. It's a good question. I don't know. I think I'm proud of moments on each one. Mm. I think, um, I think the late, the most recent one, "We Love You," it probably sounds the best. Mm. It's the only one that we didn't record live. We retract everything separately. Ah, uh, yeah. So it was. I think it's just come across better that way. And and there are there are more overdubs and it's more considered, you know, more layers of guitar and different tones. Um, 
but the drums were done in a day the bass was done pretty much in a day and then it just took about five years to do the rest of it yeah I quite like that one that, you know, there are some, but then again, it's just moments. I like some songs on that album. I like some songs on the others as well, mm. but um, yeah, I guess it just comes down to how we played it and how it was recorded. And I think some songs work really well on all the records, but I, I really couldn't choose one. I could probably make a good compilation and just have one album. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a huge gap in between each one um but yeah like you said that you know the, the latest one was done i suppose technically in, in a proper studio setting and tracks and all that and so the other two were like live more like i guess like live albums but in a yeah we recorded them we recorded the first one in the cellar of the house we lived in in leeds and that would have that would have been like we tracked the drums, bass, guitar live, and then Emily would have done the singing. And then we pretty much recorded the second one the same way, but in a studio in Leeds. Just played it all live. Right. And yeah. And it's good. It sounds like, you know, it sounds like it because some of the songs were just, you can hear it. We can hear us just hanging on, just about making it. <laughs> and I think if, if we'd have taken more time and like, if the quality control was was higher then you know it, it it would sound different but we played it like a gig with that kind of like fast frenetic energy and just yeah just hanging on by the skinny teeth to some parts and changes which were like we hadn't quite nailed yet you know and i can i can hear that in there and it's sort of good and i, I suppose that adds to the excitement yeah yeah it's that kind of rawness and and um it's not kind of contrived in any way. It's just like, you know, it is what it is. Um, I wanted to ask you about, because I asked Tim Cedar when I had Tim Cedar on from Part Chimp about the, you know, because obviously they were t they've been together for a long time, yourselves, 25 plus years. What do you think for you has been the key to sort of the, you not kind of falling out, I suppose, or just going, oh, I've had enough of this, or... You know, what is the... <laughs> yeah, I think it's just the slow burn, really. There's never been any pressure to do anything at a certain time or, you know, to have X amount of songs written by this date or, you know, no pressure from a label, no particular ambition to be more widely known. And, and, and yeah, and, and I suppose like when we're not playing in the band together, we don't really see a great deal of each other. So, yeah, um, we don't, you know, we don't get oversaturated. Yeah, absolutely. But, and, you are, um, but you are good mates though. Um, that must be, that must be a thing, surely. It's a strange, yeah, it's a strange friendship that grows from doing a band together and especially one that you've done for so long because the dy the dynamics of a group on a social level are kind of fixed from the point where you begin so it's kind of hard to change it as you go along but but you know so in, in many ways amongst ourselves amongst the three of us we're not great communicators but we we manage we just about we're just about good enough to to like make it work you know yeah 
yeah absolutely um so just i i i'm trying my best not to make this whole podcast about drumming because obviously you know got a wider wider audience uh, but so with your style i would say describe it as like a fusion between like rock funk and jazz um like a sort of love child of john bonham and buddy rich how would you do how would you do how would you <laughs> describe your style <laughs> um i i think um yeah i mean i'm, I'm essentially um someone that just listens to to the other musicians really closely and tries to accompany sensitively and and then on the other hand i really like to explore interesting rhythms as well and just have a an openness to playing different styles of music so mm. you know i think what you said about um rock jazz and funk i think that that's that's fair enough you know like that covers that covers a that covers hell a of lot. a lot <laughs> yeah. that, that covers a whole <laughs> load of stuff so i mean yeah yeah i i mean it's a difficult one because it's um it's kind of hard to see it from the outside really um i think it just comes down to like if it sounds any good to me then that's good you know and that and like whatever whatever internal sort of sensor or or kind of editor that i've got decides whether something's worth keeping or worth playing or whatever or like i know when something's tasteful or when it isn't i don't know it's really a tricky one but yeah it's just a mix of styles but i think at the heart of it like there's a rock drummer with a jazz vocabulary and an appreciation of like good feel and good groove that's that's spot on that sounds just like what neil turpin is is <laughs> definitely um right so uh probably there's one thing i wanted to uh the john the john peel sessions oh yeah made the veil in london it, bilge pump did one of the sessions is that right the 10 minute or am yeah, i we did um we did a couple we did um the first one was the two minute men live two thing minute. yeah where we played for all the bands that I think there were five bands and all of them had to play for as close to 10 minutes as possible. That was it. Yeah. 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 So what can you tell us a bit about your experience of that? And um, what do you remember? I remember, yeah, it was in Maida Vale. It was live. John Peel was behind glass in a control room. So we could see him broadcasting and we could hear his show going out live. And there were, I remember there were a few invited guests as well, amongst as well as the bands. So there was an audience because five bands, you know, four in each band or whatever. So there's probably like 30, 40 people in the room. Um, and it was just, everybody was just buzzing and just excited and just like thrilled to be doing it and excited and nervous to be playing. And um, for our part, we'd, we decided on the songs we were going to play and while while peel was talking and just chatting and playing songs we set up and we were ready to go 
And then I just remember this this big red light on the wall, you know, it, it kind of like, boom, it's red. And that's like, okay, you're live now. Wow. And then, and yeah. then we just, we just launched into it and yeah. just tried to play like solidly for 10 minutes. Wow. And, and, um, I think I deliberate, I deliberately played the ending of a song like way, way faster to try and creep, creep it, to keep it within the 10 minutes. <laughs> so you can, you can hear on that recording that there's like the tempo just kind of goes from here to here in the end section of a song. Wow. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't meet Peel. Um, I was a bit shy and like afterwards when he was, you know, out of the control room and the thing was over, he just seemed to be surrounded with people, you know, this kind of clamor. And, and I was just like, ah, you know, as much as I would love to say hello, I was just like, I don't want to be part of that, yeah. like, that crew. But I did manage to meet him just by pure chance few years later oh really um yeah he was doing a he was doing like a tv show and and he was in a record shop in bradford and i just happened to be in there wow and it was just like the guy that ran the shop said just said do you know who that is and i was like oh, fuck it's john peel <laughs> <laughs> so i did i did go over to him that time because he was just on his own just browsing the records and i just said i just said like hi john i really i really enjoy your show and he and he just said hi yeah so do i <laughs> <laughs> and it's great it was just that was it you know it was just a respectful kind of like tip of the hat and that was it nice nice but bilge um, pump did do another uh pre-recorded peel session at made avail as well so we went back um and and yeah and did that one the pre-records it's just you and the engineers and then you know it goes out on the show at some later date so did you feel it was a little bit a bit a bit less intense a bit more uh yeah we could focus on like getting the sound and getting set up and like getting a little bit of kind of warm-up going down and stuff but it was still you know the engineer still wanted it to be done and dusted in record time he didn't want you faffing so there was definitely a pressure to just get it done, go in and play it. And, you know, yeah, it wasn't, yeah. What, he, he wasn't entertaining any kind of like, you know, if you had any mild reservations about something you played, he was just like, nah, it's fine. <laughs> you were just uh, like a on the conveyor belt of, of bands and artists coming through. So yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's fine. Cause you just had to operate within that, you know, within that organization and how it how it works so yeah absolutely. that's fine you know i get i guess it, it it's uh once you know that that's how it goes down at made available for peel sessions then you can really listen to the other peel sessions with that in mind mm. and you probably know that most of that stuff wasn't you know didn't go beyond a first or a second take which is kind of kind of cool mm, definitely definitely uh, so uh, the last portion of this uh, recording um, are the questions that I sent to you. So um, yeah, let's start with three shows that blew your mind, and that this is as a as a spectator uh, uh, fan. Yeah. You know, all these questions are completely impossible to answer. Give, give it a go, Neil. 
there's, <laughs> there's just so many to choose from. It depends. Absolutely. You know, yeah. What, what, what kind of, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Okay. But I did decide, but the first one, they're all like gigs from when I was much younger. So I guess music just had a way more powerful effect. I guess in your in your teens and early twenties, it's just this massive, huge, powerful thing. Mm. Um, the first the first one is Lungfish. Yeah, the Discord Records band, and I uh, you know I'm a great fan of that band. I think they're amazing. I love their repetition and like the cosmic lyrics and the presentation and everything. It's amazing. But um, but yeah, when I when I was eighteen me and friends from college, we organized a gig for them in Preston. So it was the first gig that I'd ever put on and, and it was lungfish. So this is definitely one of those, you know, big, memorable, unforgettable, life-changing gigs. Because not only was I seeing this amazing band, they were on tour with Circus Lupus as well, another Discord band, they were on tour together. So not only was I seeing these two bands, um, me and my mates were organizing it and just like, we were just kids, you know, we we're 18 and the whole experience was just amazing that we made it happen, that it was a success. And then the bands were all staying with me and my friend's parents. Cause you know, we all live with our parents. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it was an experience for them as well, which you know, at the time I didn't think anything of, but since then, and having been in their position when I'm on tour and staying at some kid's house who lives at home, then it's like, yeah, this is what it must've been like for them. So it was kind of nice, but they were all very sweet. And, you know, it, it, it was, it was a great exchange and yeah, the gig was a success that we packed the place out. We had like this band dead wrong, who were a DIY band, at the time and then a local like death metal band called Hecatomb who were on the bill and they seemed to draw like a massive crowd and and a lot of which left after they played it was that really old school kind of like we're only here to see out our band you know yeah. we're supporting our yeah. friends we're going to pay full price we're not going to watch anything else yeah it's fine you know i i i was like that's cool we, we've met the guarantee of the touring band, like the, the pressure's off, you know, we can pay for the PA. Awesome. And uh, so, so yeah, that, that all worked out, but a, a really, a, you know, a really amazing, memorable thing. Um, the next day as well, is that a few of the bands stayed at my mum's house, you know, where I lived and I had a drum kit set up there and a little amp and, um, it was Ace, the guitarist from Lungfish. He he asked me if I wanted to have a jam. So oh. it's like, yep, I reckon so. <laughs> so wow. he went and got his guitar and a lead out of the van and plugged in. And then the guitarist from Circus Lupus like grabbed an amp and a guitar as well. So, you know, I was just loving it and and just having, you know, just jamming on some riffs. And Daniel Higgs, the singer of Lungfish, was just sat sat at the kit at the uh, like the dining room table just kind of like clicking his fingers oh, amazing th that experience yeah. is completely you know burned into my memory just like it's 
because I was, you know, I was just freaking out inside and just like, this is amazing, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. my favorite people in my favorite bands and here I am, I'm getting to like jam with them. That's amazing. Um, so yeah, that, that one goes down on, on the list of <clears throat> memorable and exceptional life changes for sure. And um, do, do you have a couple more or should, I mean, we can... yeah. Um, the next one would be Mud Honey at, um, at Manchester International. Um, so that would have that would have predated the Lungfish was 1992. Um, Mud Honey was 1989 in Manchester. And I'd heard them on John Peel. It was just kind of like, you know, I think probably before grunge was even coined, it mm. was, they were just kind of coming through. Um, you know, Sub Pop was still like a really cool underground label. And uh, and yeah, we found out about the gig probably reading The Enemy or something, or Sounds maybe, probably Sounds. And um, yeah, a group, me, me and three others, a group of mates from school, all like 15 years old, just took the train over to Manchester. And like, now that I think about it, how on earth did we get into a gig? I don't really know. They must have had a really yeah. low bar on on like age and IDs and things. Did you did you have a beard at the time that kind of <laughs> accentuated your age? I mean, I've always been tall, but like you know. But yeah, that that was amazing because the Superfuzz Big Muff was out, and I think the first album had just come out. Maybe I'm getting that confused, but they, that's the set anyway, because I remember it so well. Mm. So it was like all those early songs, which I love. And I'd never seen a band with like so much energy and, um, and, and just intensity. And like, they were just going for it, you know, they were just fresh faced and, and like, just, just like flinging themselves around and just playing this amazing music. And like, I guess it was my introduction to like, fuzzed out guitars and like you know maybe a little bit of a swingy sort of drum sound as well mm, yeah um, so yeah me and my friends were just down the front you know and like just 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 loving it just absorbed and just like just digging it so much and then afterwards we realized that we'd missed our train home so we spent the night um on piccadilly station so we could get the train home at like 6 15 in the morning or something oh i've done that so before yeah yeah so it's just a memorable memorable adventure all around bit of everything yeah um yeah and then the the other one would be seeing elvin jones play live he's one of my favorite drummers mm. um i saw him in at ronnie scott's in birmingham in 2001 so he would have been in his early 70s wow he was fronting the Elvin Jones jazz machine. And I think they were, I think it was like a five piece with like bass, piano, trombone, um, maybe trumpet. And then Elvin, it was amazing. Like it was all seated, just tables, very, you know, very civilized. And uh, we had a table right at the front and the drums were set up right at the front as well. So like, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a great distance between our heads and like Elvin's bass drum. So oh. it was it was just about as intimate as you could want could hope for. I guess and, that yeah. And yeah, and just to see someone like that who's a complete legend and an innovator 
just to see it close up and to see to see him playing with like so much sort of fire and vitality and still like searching creatively as well it was it was like inspiring kind of beyond belief really hmm and i i mean that that will probably tie into one of the other questions that that um in fact we'll we'll go for it because because it ties in nicely to so your your top who would say your top three drumming idols um well yeah elvin jones is definitely one of them he's just a beautiful drummer you know he's just the the way that he plays with time and and breaks up trick triplets and just has this flow that it has a pulse but you you're not necessarily stating the pulse it's sort of like he's just threading threading in all around the pulse and like in such a unique and recognizable way like you put a record on you immediately know if if elvin jones is the drummer because he's he's just nailed nailed his sound you know mm. Mm. um so yeah elvin for sure um you know, and particularly like in the John Coltrane Quartet, that era, all that stuff is just on fire. There's just some amazing footage of it that you can watch as well. There's like some amazing studio footage where like they're all wearing suits, heavy suits and shirts and ties and like the hot studio lights are on them. And like Elvin's just it's fierce, man. It's just like so much energy and strength and like it's like steam coming off his head. It's amazing. <laughs> yes. That's great. It's kind of like that scene in live as well, you know. You could kind of like, even if there was an actual steam coming off his head, you you kind of could see that there should be. Yeah, that energy. And yeah, so Elvin definitely, and then I'd say it's a toss up really between Bill Ward and John Bonham. It really is a toss up, you know. It's really really difficult to decide. So I'm gonna have them as one choice. Just you know. If that's allowable, I, I can. You're Neil Turpin. You, you know, I'll let you off, mate. <laughs> you're a legend, so thanks. yeah. Thanks for making that exception. <laughs> yeah. So, so like, yeah. I mean, Bill Ward. You know, massive influence. Love his jazziness that that was like all over the first album, and like again, just like a fierce energy of playing, just like complete commitment to what he's doing. And then Bonham is like. He's kind of like that on the first album, but then it's all way more refined. But I love this. I love his sound, you know, the sound and, and his groove and his articulation. That's really recognizable too. You know, you know who the drummer is when you hear it. Um, so yeah, it's got like just heaps of personality and, you know, you can make sense. You can, And it's not necessarily like complex. You can go, I can go back now and make sense of, you know what those two are playing work it out but you know that's only half the story isn't it it's like how you do it it's not necessarily what you're playing it's how you're playing it and Absolutely. i just love the the way that both of them are playing it and just how creative they are and how strong a presence the drums are in the sound you know and mm. um, so yeah so so then my third choice would be um joseph modelist from the meters which um 
Which this this kind of uh, ties in with you know your earlier description. We've got rock, we've got jazz, and we've got funk. So you know, there's there's these these like legends representing each part of each genre. So that's cool. So yeah, Joseph Modlis from the Meters, pure creativity, and again, really beautiful drumming and just amazing sounding drums as well. It's just kind of like just to hear his hi hats and just like a crack on the snare, and it's immediately recognizable, mm. and. Mm. And there's there's a kind of like turned aroundness to what he plays. It's like, you know, you're listening and you're like, oh, what just happened there? And and it's kind of like, kind of backwards to what you're used to. And it just sounds amazing. Yeah, definitely. Just uh, very quickly, um, something that I've, I don't know what you think about the way production is these days. Do you feel like drums uh, like and the production side of it is, taken away the character of of like you know like you know think 100 years ago maybe like one mic stank in a little condenser or whatever's dangling in the middle of the room and that's all they've got and the drums just sound so like roomy and and like just organic like i, I don't know what you think about that yeah um i mean it's not just the drums it's everything like mm. as digital recording has progressed and you know i guess the methods just change the sound of the, of the music across the board so i think you can i think you can still get those sounds if you want them hmm. you know you can get a roomy drum sound if that's what you're going for or you can kind of go for something way more quantized and like synced up and there seems to be a lot of music that like has this like a super tight metronomic kind of groove to it and, mm. I, and i think that's probably well it is isn't it it's like it's the impact of drum machines on music that now drummers like you know we're not going to be threatened by machines we're going to play as well as machines and like if not better than machines so yeah i think that really represents a lot of drumming these days which impresses me and it's not mm. something that i really aspire to play but it blows my mind when someone can play like super tight like a machine like that you know it does sound great mm. um but yeah i don't know i mean i do love the sound of old records for sure yeah i mean totally like simple recordings just like those ensembles played live often roomy live you know a lot of room for dynamics and subtlety and expression mm. yeah i love all mm. that mm. but i mean I'll still listen to, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think of an example of like modern drumming that's like, I've got doesn't one. have that sound. I'm, songs, I'm, songs for the death, Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah, right. That's, that's that's. I mean, that's 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 amazing in its own right, isn't it? It's like I think it's a I think it's a masterpiece. Like his drumming is yeah. incredible on that record. It's, the way it's recorded um, is just so brutally dry. Mm. Didn't he record all the cymbals separately? and then recorded uh, the drums separately. probably he's very uh kind of intense in the way he records isn't he i've heard like especially with like few fighters apparently he, he's like re-recorded uh, at the beginning he was like re-recording the drum parts without telling yeah. the drummer that was before uh taylor oh really taylor hawkins <laughs> so joined up so that's that's good that's not gonna make him feel a bit insecure but yeah <laughs> I do like, I think I read somewhere that, yeah, on that Queens of the Stone Age album, they did, they recorded the drums and then recorded the cymbals just for that extra 
element of like brutal separation and dryness that it has. Wow. That's, but yeah, yeah, it's so it's so clinically like on the money, isn't it? There's nothing yeah. that's yeah. left to chance or left in. You know, there's there's no kind of like, you know, oh that that was a good take, but I kind of I kind of scuffed it on this bit, but we'll keep it. It's kind of just seems like we're going for absolute, you know, mechanical precision here. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah. I mean, he, he is like a his style is very robotic, not robotic because that makes him sound a bit not very artistic, but like he is like a metronome. Like you know, that's how I. But you know, I think he's a, a fantastic amazing drummer as well in his own right yeah so. I, I see i see him in the category of drummer it's like hands above the head drummer you know like yeah like, <laughs> like that that kind of proper workout sort of drummer uh the guy from battles uh what's his name he's got a crash symbol that's like he has to almost yeah. stand up to hit it i can't remember what his name is <laughs> yeah. but yeah metronomic yeah, as well um yeah uh, so two uh two more uh, two more to go and then uh, so let's go with uh, three records that change your life um, okay then I suppose in order it'd be the first Black Sabbath album because it's probably the record that I've listened to more than any other record ever because I discovered it when I was really young like 10 or 11 years old um, my stepdad had it in his collection and you know, me and my mates at school were like into metal. So I was like, wow, look what I found. I found the first Black Sabbath album. And it's just, yeah, just totally amazing. Blew my mind completely. And at, at that time, it's, you know, the melodies and the riffs, they're, almost, they're, they're really like almost like nursery rhymes or something. They're so simple and like, you know, immediate. So mm. you don't need any sophistication to like it just because it has that like childlike quality. Um, so I loved it, you know, on that level. And I knew that something good was happening with the drums. I didn't stand a chance of understanding it, you know, hearing a song like The Wizard and it's so like amazing and like the cowbells in there and all those fills, just like, whoa, I had no idea what was going on, but I knew that is great and sounds yeah, amazing. Yeah, definitely. So that album for sure, just because it's like been there the whole time, you know, and I just revisit it and like, it's hard to like listen to one song without listening to the whole album. So. I think I have to listen to the whole thing when it when it's on and you know it's like the first side is really like to the point and like the songs are like you know there's no messing and then the b side is just like this massive sprawling like mostly a guitar solo all oh, right like, yeah like a prom you know jam. that's cool <laughs> it's like they're just getting it all out there on the first album and I think it only took them a day to do it as well so mm. it's got all this energy in it you know it's it's classic sort of uh, like document of a band's first album where mm. they've got all this vital energy that's just like you know thankfully been captured really well mm. Mm, absolutely so yeah that's that's one for sure and um and uh, the next one would be like i mean again this is like a massively impossible it's hard i know yeah question that that like om omits so many other things but i'm gonna say double nickels on the dime by the minutemen okay yeah um, because the Minutemen were a band that I discovered, I don't know, around the age of 15 on skateboard videos. <clears throat> and then, you know, once I started delving into their back catalog, I guess that album stands out because it's this like double, double album of, you know, just like so many songs on there. I have no idea. 
but I love the drumming, love the whole thing, the bass, the guitars, singing. It's just immediate and like so much energy and like the lyrics are great as well. And 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 it also it also sounded like nothing else. And and I really love that about discovering a new band mm. where they have their own immediately recognizable character. So, you know, there's an authenticity authenticity that like just shines through. They're just like doing their own thing and like they're part of this, you know, this like hardcore scene or whatever, like that sort of 1980s West Coast hardcore scene, but like mm. they're not remotely interested in sounding like Black Flag or any of the other bands. They're like completely unique. So yeah, they're standouts and I still love them now and I love the drumming. Like George Hurley was a massive influence because you could really hear something something going on that wasn't going on in other music. And they were obviously like drawing on a lot of different influences beyond like the hardcore punk scene. Mm, mm, absolutely. And, um, and then, yeah, for similar reasons, like Spiderland by Slint would Oof, be the next one. Great choice. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm probably not the only person to choose that, but like, I couldn't ignore it. You know, it's like, perhaps it's an obvious choice, but, um, but yeah, again, just total uniqueness and like an approach to music that no one else was really doing at the time. And and um, it was it was this 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 guy at college who was like a year or two older than me. He was really into music, liked a lot of really kind of interesting and obscure things. Hmm. And often he plays stuff, and I'm like, nah, I don't like this. You know, I wasn't ready for it. It's just like my ear wasn't mature enough but like he said oh i think you'll like slint and then he played a bit of spiderland and i was like oh wow so i had to go out and buy it and uh yeah of course it's just amazing it's um so beautifully recorded and and so um so much restraint in it as well mm. so much mm. space and amazing dynamics as well Absolutely. And, and of course you know and and the common thread throughout is like the good drumming as well yeah the drumming's amazing on that record as well yeah like super tasteful there's nothing there's nothing unnecessary in there yeah and like you know all the fills because the the you know he's not like going for it the whole time there's just like when there's a fill there's a fill and it's like oh wow it's got an impact yeah so yeah just just a really beautiful sound and uh I was amazed to like discover how young they were as well. Like later on, you know, when they made that record, it's like, it's like kids, like how on earth do you do it? <laughs> There's a maturity to it, isn't there? That, yeah, that you would, Completely. feels like it's a, it yeah. was ahead of its time almost, you know? Oh when... but yeah, for sure. Without a doubt. And I mean, it became a blueprint for like so many other bands that came after as well. Mm, absolutely. And, and nobody, nobody matched it really. You know, if you only, if you only need, if you only have one post rock album, then just have that and like, you know, you're done. Like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so last one is uh, free, free because you've been together, Bilge Pumps have been together for 25 plus years. This is going to be a tough one. Free Bilge Pump gigs that you will never forget. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, there'll be positive, oh, positive ones. Not, um, yeah, not the ones that I wish I could forget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um it's tough like i remember i remember a lot of moments from gigs so i think 
having played so many, they they just blur together. It's like you know this mush, this mass of just blob of gigs. So it's really just trying to pluck a few moments that stick out in my mind over the years and like a good a good a good one you know and like it's just the ones that spring to mind so there's one at the pack horse in leeds it would have been a very early one mm. so just playing like a you know full-on intense little sweaty room playing on the floor everyone stood up it's you know just like hometown sort of small diy gig and like i can't remember the song but like i think i think joe snapped a string and somehow somehow the string the guitar string like went through his finger Ooh. or his thumb, like right through, like came out the other side. So he's like impaled on his guitar oh, string. That's grim. Yeah. <clears throat> so for some reason, I remember that. I remember it. I remember it. So I can't remember if somebody removed it for him or if he removed it, but like that sticks in your mind. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty strong gig injury. It's a... um, that's one. I re then... A more recent one was like playing in Leeds again. Um, we did a, a matinee show, which was attended by kids on a Sunday afternoon. So we deliberately kept the volume down a bit and, and did a little bit of crowd participation. So um, on, on the song Natural Blonde, it all comes down to feedback. And then there's a drum, a drum free for all. So I handed out all the sticks and beaters to this crowd of children ranging from like four years old to, you know, like, like 11 or whatever. So there was, there was this gang of like 10 or 15 kids all with sticks, just like thrashing away on the drums and the cymbals. Oh, amazing. Um, so that, you know, that was cool. And then it was actually really hard to get them to stop to carry on the song. That's the thing um, with kids, isn't it? Yeah, very hard to. So, so, uh, so yeah, but that was great. That was really good fun. Um, playing in Milton Keynes was always memorable because the the locals there would always like whip whip their tops off and like ah yes, this came up kind of yeah have this kind of semi naked wrestling thing going on. This is like, the whole the, yeah Don McLean. Uh... Uh, action beat yeah. those guys they were they exactly, loved to yeah. take the tops off yeah yeah so that's <laughs> that was always really memorable and the gigs the gigs are always in like leisure centers or tennis clubs or golf clubs or so, yeah. you know it's yeah. like there's always this kind of sports angle but there was one in like a tennis club where um it perhaps was at the similar point in the song as as the kids taking over the drums um, but this time, like the, the audience, like all these topless blokes, like picked up Joe. So he, he was aloft and then they picked <laughs> up Emily. so he was aloft as well. And they were both getting passed around <laughs> amongst the audience. Oh, man. But I, awesome. I was, I was kind of like on my drum, I was on the floor on my drums on the drum rug. But I think, I think there was probably, you know, I think they were probably thinking amongst themselves, can we pick him up as well? But. I think I think I probably like had some kind of like you know psychic defense up or something. Just like leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So, but but that was memorable. And um, yeah. and then a recent one was playing at End of the Road Festival, which was 
you know, the biggest gig we've ever done. And in 2019, on the back of like, um, you know, being, being, being discovered <laughs> yeah, <laughs> by six music. Um, but yeah, anyway, yeah. So like, yeah, playing End of the Road was cool because it was, it was nice to just do it on that grand scale and, and have a good, and have a really great sound and just like, um, experience that level of professionalism by the crew and everyone. And it was like, it was all good. You know, there was just a good, a good vibe to it all. And like, mm. it was dead efficient and you're on, you were set, you know, like minimal sound check, just kind of like total pros doing their jobs. It was really nice to see in them, you know, in an amazing kind of state of the art PA as well. So, you, you know, if you're playing intricate stuff that's loud, it often just gets lost in a mush. If it's through a PA, I can't deal with it. But like, you know, mm. from what people said, it sounded great. And, and it was in a massive marquee, huge tent. And we had no idea if anyone was, you know, thought maybe at best a, few, a handful of people might stick around, you know, some friends who we got in on the guest list. Yeah. But like people stuck around and people came and they stayed as well. So it was, it was a good one. Like it felt like, yeah, job done. You know, these people don't really, most of the people in the room probably didn't know who we were, but we were doing something that like kept them, kept them uh, engaged for That's great. Yeah. 35 minutes or however long we played. Awesome. Um, do you know Chris Catterall from, he was in Narcosis? And I think Mecha Godzilla as well. Like, oh right, yeah, I remember yeah. Mecha Godzilla. Yeah. yeah. So he was also in a, another uh, grindcore band called Narcosis from from Wigan. Uh, yeah. He has he, he he has a question for you. Did anyone ever fall down that enormous hole in One Twenty Rats? <laughs> 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 I think it's a venue, isn't it? In Leeds, it was a maybe yeah. it was a venue. One Twenty Rats was. Um, was a squat in Meanwood in Leeds, right? In the um, like mid nineties, and it was it was mainly a bunch of French guys, uh, punk rockers, and they were in a band called Headache, and um, they they started opening up their their home, which was a squat, into a venue as well. So they'd have a makeshift bar and put bands on, and and it was amazing. It was like yeah, the coolest place in Leeds to like just do a gig or go and see a gig and hang out it was, it was totally great the hole i'm not sure about the hole i mean the house the house was like in a bit of a state of disrepair so uh, it, might, it might have been a hole in the ceiling on one of the <laughs> yeah. in one of the rooms i can sort of remember a hole hole in the floor you know probably on the first or second floor i'm guessing that somebody will have fallen down it because people definitely weren't sober very often in that place right so, yeah um all i can say is yeah i reckon somebody probably did but i don't have any particular anecdotes to to, <laughs> to, to fulfill that hope you're happy chris there's there's your uh there's your answer uh <laughs> 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 been uh it's been an absolute pleasure having you on neil thank you so much thank you for listening and thank you for watching this was a really special episode for me personally. I've seen Bilge Pump at least seven or eight times in my lifetime, and I consider Neil to be one of my top three drumming idols. 
The main thing that stood out for me was Neil's incredible articulation. Wonderfully expressive in speech and equally so behind the kit. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And for you drummers, make sure you practice two hours and 45 minutes every day. Next up is Dan Brooks, lead vocalist and frontman for arguably the UK's best modern day post-punk band, Total Victory. If you haven't heard of them, check out the song Omni Victory as a starting point. If you're watching on YouTube, please could you like and subscribe to my channel to help the podcast grow. If you're listening on Apple iTunes, please could you leave a review under the ratings and review section. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter by searching The Scene Was Dead Anyway. Thank you for listening and thank you for watching. I'm your host, Rick Walland, and you were listening to The Scene Was Dead Anyway. Mm-hmm.